0: Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders, delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. Following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Sydney, Australia's most forward thinking workspace. This episode's conversation is about the future of work. Australia faces many challenges, not the least of which is the transition to a post mining boom economy. Yet old habits die hard. And governments at all levels and of all persuasions are clinging to a world we must leave behind, rather than shaping the one we need to embrace. This is a world where ideas do matter and can be translated into value for our economy and society. Are we up to the challenge? Roy Green is the Dean of the UTS Business School and is the perfect person to answer the question. Roy's career has spanned across academia, business and government, he has published widely in the areas of innovation, policy and management. Australia's future. Do ideas matter? A Florence Guild conversation with Roy
1: Green. Well, thank you all for coming on this very rainy day. And um, I hope this is more in the nature of a conversation than a speech. I'm um, happy for you to intervene at any point. Um, and uh, I guess I'm talking with you about the role of ideas in our national political life. Uh, such as they are and such as it is. I'm just back from a trip a couple of days ago, uh, which took me to two cities, Shanghai and London. Now there was a very interesting contrast, as you can imagine. uh, We had our graduations for our uh, undergraduate degree in Shanghai, um, and I had um, a review of a business school and various other less exciting things to do in London. Shanghai, a buzz with optimism and enthusiasm among our graduates. Uh, for them, um, the sky was the limit. Um, you could see that um, they were not weighed down by history, uh, they were looking to the future. Um, and then arriving in London, what a contrast uh, with a, the atmospherics changed, switched over to bewilderment, confusion uncertainty, lack of direction, who knows where all these circles will be squared around Brexit. Um, And that's the spectrum uh, in the world today essentially uh, and uh, very evocative of what's happening in our geopolitics. So where does Sydney, where does Australia fit into all of this? Uh, Well obviously we're very much on the margins, we always have been, but we've had a contribution to make, Um, we've just been ranked in a a rather interesting World Economic Forum survey as being the second ranked country in the world as judged by various populations as having a positive influence on world events. Well uh, that's not a bad thing for us to start from, Um, at least we're not on the other side of the ledger. Uh, You might ask who came first, well it was Canada and uh, following us was Germany. Um, and you'll notice these are all open multicultural uh, societies which have the capacity to question themselves. Um, so we, we start off from what might appear to be a good place, but we also have our own self-inflicted wounds, uh, which start from the world of ideas, in a sense. Uh, we became part of a world movement uh, with Reagan and Thatcher in the 1980s that promoted uh, the ideology of neoliberalism. And um, what an interesting set of consequences we had uh, with that. Um, A series of changes have taken place in our economy that we're now able to evaluate with the benefit of hindsight, Uh, firstly a massive privatization program. Um, and uh, Jackie here is, I know wherever you are, doing a an interesting history of the Commonwealth Bank, which started out as a public uh, sector player in the uh, international, um, fi- fi- in the local and international financial markets, and uh, is now part of our private sector o- banking oligopoly. Um, and I might say here, We need to distinguish uh, neoliberalism from globalism uh, because there was a lot about the Australian economy in the 1970s and 80s that was sclerotic, uh, that needed addressing to integrate us into the global uh, market and financial system. We needed to deal with high tariffs to enable our own businesses to become more competitive on the world stage. We needed to integrate our financial and banking system into uh, a global system Um, and uh, those were areas that were the subject of a lot of debate at the time but which became almost indistinguishable from this uh, philosophy or ideology of neoliberalism that required privatization not only of parts of markets but also of uh, vertically integrated monopolies like um, our telecom, Telstra, Um, and uh, we've seen the consequence of that in our failure to develop a national broadband network which had then to be uh, created from scratch in a new public sector environment. Uh, We've seen the contracting out of many of our uh, public services and education. Uh, Oh, Kemi is saying you can't hear at the back? Talk a bit louder? Okay. Um, You've seen a lot of uh, the contracting out and the impact of that in health, education, uh, public services, in transport, uh, some of which made sense, some of which didn't. Uh, These things had to be dealt with on a pragmatic basis, but they were in many cases dealt with more on an ideological basis. Uh, Everything that was public was bad, everything that was private was good. Uh, We saw more of this with public private partnerships with no sense of what the return would be for the public over a a longer period than four or five years, if we think 20, 30, 50 years, uh, think about um, the uh, success or otherwise of some of those public-private partnerships that we've entered into uh, without proper cost-benefit studies. The desalination plant, That's, that's pretty useful. Um, the uh, West Connects project, uh, which we will be assessing again in no doubt ten or fifteen years' time, and wondering how on earth did that all happen to us. Um, and then finally, in the um, in the market for public goods, um, and uh, here the obvious example is what's happened in our vocational education and training system uh, with uh, contestability for Uh, the providers of training and education um, at the tertiary level but not within the university system. Um, We've just poured $3 billion of taxpayers money down the drain of private providers who got onto a a bandwagon uh, which was the public um, subvention of their uh, provision of training whatever the quality or otherwise of that training and uh, the collapse of many of those providers and the disappointment and and tragedies around ruined careers for many people uh, added to that legacy of um, expenditure which could have gone to admittedly a sleepy TAFE sector but nevertheless to build up a training system that was originally meant to be the equivalent of the German apprenticeship system. It's far from that now. We can go on, but um, we have uh, um, a number of uh, uh, developments which may fit in with the neoliberal consensus, at at least as it was at the time, but can only be described as weird in retrospect, uh, because they've got caught up in culture wars. Uh, When we think about (coughs) climate change, it's now not a matter of evidence, but a, a matter of belief. Do you believe in it? or not. Uh, This is not an enlightenment approach to uh, intellectual debate. Uh, Debate is supposed to be based on on evidence and uh, we're seeing a denial of evidence when it comes to dealing with one of the biggest issues facing our planet. Um, It goes further when we think about what's happening in our electricity market. Why on earth are we seeing these massive spikes in our prices compared with the rest of the world, when we have all uh, the energy we could possibly desire uh, within Australia for a relatively small population. Why is it that as we become the world's largest exporter of gas, we have a gas shortage? Um, it it's, um, boggles the mind to think that contracts were entered into five or 10 years ago. And remember, governments only have three-year timescales, so, so they don't need to think five years ahead. Uh, But can you imagine entering into a contract which privileges exports over domestic consumption? No other country in the world has done that. Um, In the US, in the US states, in in Canada, um, the uh, export of gas is something that is done in addition to meeting domestic demand. Here it's been the other way around and it's almost impossible now uh, to intervene in those contracts. All of these resulted from uh, the massive Uh, privileging of an ideology over the evidence, over long-term thinking as opposed to short-term thinking. Um, It's almost a move to an anti-enlightenment point of view and combined with that uh, the destruction of our trade unions uh, in the labour market. Um, Trade unions no doubt um, there are good ones and there are bad ones. I've always taken the view that uh, employers get the unions they deserve Uh, But um, there was again, part of this uh, ideological apparatus, the systematic uh, removal of protections and rights for workers joining and being active in their unions, which was part of the way in which uh, working people gained a share of the productivity gains from technological change. Uh, The result of that around the Western world is uh, the enormous increase in inequality, uh, the financialization of our large corporates so that uh, the surpluses don't go towards uh, the people who work for those companies but uh, to share buybacks and uh, inflated executive salaries. Um, And as a result, um, in the US at least, no real wage increase for uh, working and middle class people since 1979. Uh, we've been luckier in Australia because we had a commodities boom which increased um, our national income by 15% but we didn't actually have to do anything for that. It was the windfall from China because of the increase uh, in commodity prices that resulted in massive increases in revenue uh, in Australia and therefore an increase in our national income. But um, that uh, sense of inequality has now brought um, savage retribution at the polls uh, and uh, a great deal of unrest across the world which is reflected in those elections we've seen recently Trump and the Brexit referendum and one (laughs) or two others. Um, This is people not necessarily acting rationally but people in a desperate state not knowing which parties to trust because all of them had signed up to this neoliberal consensus, which from their point of view had not been to their advantage and they were going to vote for whatever populist alternative came along uh, that could alleviate their plight, even if the populist alternative was by no means an alternative to where their current plight was uh, heading. Um, We've seen uh, interesting examples of that over history. Uh, I don't know how many of you were able to come to an event a few months ago when we hosted Chris Cutana, who was one of the authors of uh, a new and a very interesting book, well a book about a year old now, called The Age of Discovery uh, with his colleague Ian Golden at Oxford looking at the parallels between the current day and the Renaissance in the 14th and 15th centuries especially in Italy. Uh, Of course there are very strong parallels around huge technological change, the advent of printing and so on, uh, and uh, and in the arts. But the the interesting thing about this book was that they wanted to look at the political undercurrents. Why was it that the Medicis were overthrown in Florence at the height of Florence's riches? Uh, What was it about the populist mob uh, that led to them Supporting Savannah Roller uh, and uh, enabling the overthrow of what was one of the most successful and prosperous states in history, um, and uh, of course it was the fact that many of those citizens had not participated in the enormous creation of wealth that had gone on during that period. Uh, Savannah Roller, and this is long time the book was published long time before the Trump election, by the way. Uh, Savannah Roller in the book uh, is um, said and quoted to say uh, make Florence great again and uh, indeed um, he uh, was um, supposed to do so but ended up uh, being burnt at the stake as you might recall and uh, we might see something not dissimilar to that in the in the modern age but uh, the rise of populism is something that could easily have been predicted in this context as a backlash against uh, the inflexible implementation of an ideology which increasingly lost uh, contact with the evidence. Um, We always talk about evidence-based policy um, in national life but the unfortunate thing in recent years is that we've got policy-based evidence and uh, we now have to confront the fact that many of our societies are disintegrating as a result. There's a a book that I looked up this morning, which I've always thought was a wonderful uh, piece of work by someone called Joseph Tainter in the US. This is written in 1988, uh, last century, we might say. Um, American archeologist, believe it or not. And it's called The Collapse of Complex Societies. He looks at the Roman society, he looks at the Mayan civilization looks at Chacoan society in Southwest uh, America. It's uh, an interesting study of how complexity drives society and wealth, but can also turn against us. And he says here, interesting uh, in his uh, conclusions, four concepts lead to understanding collapse. The first three of which are the underpinnings of the fourth. These are firstly, Human societies are problem-solving organisations. Second, socio-political systems require energy for their maintenance. Third, increased complexity carries with it increased costs per capita. have to invest in it. And fourth, investment in socio-political complexity as a problem-solving response often reaches a point of declining marginal returns. In other words, you have to keep investing in your society, in your ideas, in your renewal, uh, not just to create wealth as in in any instrumental sense, but even to prevent the society from disintegrating around you. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's really the, maybe in a dramatic way, um, the challenge that we face even in Australia, at the margins of all of these massive geopolitical debates and events, uh, because we have here a huge challenge of economic transition. We're running into diminishing returns uh, in the export of our unprocessed raw materials. Um, some people seem to think that the future belongs to fossil fuels. I think we know that that cannot possibly be the case. Uh, we have to move like any successful society in the 21st century to becoming a knowledge-based society, a knowledge-based economy and that means investing in our knowledge, not uh, threatening universities and higher education with 20% cutbacks, but investing heavily. The Chinese are investing heavily, I can tell you. Uh, the, the, The enormous investment and the creation of very high quality universities means that many of the Chinese students that we rely on to support our own university system may well decide at some point. Uh, Australian universities really aren't up to it. Why don't we stay in China and attend our own. Um, But we have in that context as well a massive um, challenge in our labor market because uh, with these uh, new technologies and skills, new uh, forms of artificial intelligence, machine learning, the changes in the way in which we produce and consume, uh, we're seeing Uh, many of the jobs that currently exist disappearing or changing before our eyes Uh, and it's estimated in 10 years time an interesting piece of work by the Oxford Martin School around 40 percent of current jobs won't exist and certainly won't exist in their current form. There's a bit of debate over these percentages some some of the claims are a bit overblown and there's a big debate going on at the moment uh, about some uh, work that wasn't sufficiently supported by evidence. But the evidence is certainly telling us that most of the jobs that we currently uh, enjoy here won't be uh, operating in their current form or at all in uh, 10 or 15 years time. And that means from the point of view of um, the higher education system of schools, uh, we have to prepare our students for jobs that don't exist. Uh, jobs that we can only imagine as well as jobs that currently do. Uh, It means giving students what we call at UTS boundary crossing skills uh, an an ability to undertake analytical and creative problem solving as well as the specialised knowledge that you need around um, digitisation and uh, technology more widely. And in addition to that we need to have methods by which the enormous productivity enhancing features of these technologies are shared in the population. What kind of social instruments can we devise to ensure that society doesn't just become a core of very high knowledge intensive jobs and people and a large mass of people uh, who are confined to the precarious rim of the labor market undertaking jobs that are poorly paid or not having any jobs at all to perform. Um, A lot of discussion has taken place about guaranteed incomes. Uh, Maybe that's one route but there are many possibilities there that a country like Australia could experiment with and uh, this is where the rest of the world does have some faith in us because as a new society, relatively new uh, society, uh, very dynamic society, we have the opportunity to shape the future in a way that could be a model for other places to follow, not just for us to follow whatever is the latest trend irrespective of the evidence. And we see the impact of new ideas around us uh, that are game changing. Along comes Elon Musk and says, hang on, all this debate about intermittent power from renewable sources why don't we just install a giant battery well that's just changed the discussion overnight why didn't someone else come along and do that well it took uh, someone with a game-changing application and opportunity uh, to to change the nature of that debate overnight let's see how it works out and in politics um, everyone's despairing of the descent of Europe into populism and along comes Emmanuel Macron and changes the debate, changes it totally, uh, detaches globalism from neoliberalism, and says there is a better way for us to manage uh, globalisation. We have to be committed to globalisation. We can't retreat from the world. We can't retreat from Europe. I'll even demonstrate that by playing the Ode to Joy rather than the French national anthem uh, at my inauguration. Uh, And uh, suddenly, He's energized the entire French population. I think people are still full of trepidation as to what he can deliver on, but it's changed the debate and it's possible to do that. So there are two Ms and what about the third, Malcolm? Well, he had his chance. Uh, He had his chance at the end of 2015 with the announcement of um, his new innovation and science agenda, I think he Uh, did manage to energize a lot of people. He did bring the population with him. Uh, People were uh, uh, operating under uh, the assumption that he would deliver and meet very high expectations. Perhaps perhaps the expectations were too high as they might currently be with uh, Macron in France. But uh, how disappointing it was to see that the whole innovation agenda was so badly sold um, as a policy of the elites, uh, the people who sit around like us here in cafes uh, rather than something that would improve the well-being of the entire population. Out there in marginal seats like Capricornia the innovation story was interpreted to mean uh, well all this technological excitement may excite you, but it means me losing my job. And uh, once that caught on, there was no saving the agenda. Uh, And uh, since the election, how much have we heard about it? Uh, Very little. And yet innovation, science, education remain at the heart of what we need to do as a society to overcome the failure of our politics. We do have the opportunity for renewal but what we can see is that it isn't necessarily going to come from the politicians alone, or even if uh, they're part of it. Um, I spent a good deal of my career, well at least six years anyway, um, in Ireland uh, at the beginning of the 2000s during the innovation boom. Now there's a small country which um, in the 1980s was losing its population at a rapid rate, 50,000 net uh, immigrants per year. Uh, 17% unemployment, 20% inflation. The economic and political model had totally broken down. Uh, No faith by the electorate in their politicians, many of whom were corrupt. Um, And so what happened, a civil society movement emerged uh, involving uh, business, involving the trade unions, involving community organisations, and many parts of the civil service, which is of an extremely high standard in Ireland. That is the peak of your career, really, uh, as, a, as a graduate to get, enter into the civil service. Otherwise, uh, there's teaching and, and immigration. That's basically it uh, at that time. Uh, but um, they decided their economic model didn't work. They were going to create a new one, which would be based on massive high technology international investment in the country. Uh, It would be based on linking that investment with the growth of um, SME, local SME supply chains. Uh, It would be based on a massive scaling up of the population to be part of the attraction of those international companies Uh, and it would be based on um, a national foresight and capacity to analyze and identify where the economy wanted to be in 10 or 20 years time. Um, Fanciful, you might say, in a small economy on the margins of Europe, suffering such huge uh, economic pressures, how could it possibly turn itself around? Well, the energy was there to do it. The ideas were there to do it. They were non-standard ideas, industry intervention, industry policy, innovation policy, Uh, but they brought it off. Um, They used tax, of course, to initially attract many of these international companies, but the international companies once embedded in that society uh, were then impressed by the level of skill and it brought more companies of that kind uh, who linked up with many of the local SMEs that then became global players in their own right. And even when the economy half collapsed with the uh, finance and property crash, a sort of self-inflicted wound by the, the Irish. They were, had their own subprime property crisis. Uh, they should have been able to avoid it, but they didn't. They got a bit greedy, especially in the financial sector when they deregulated. Uh, nevertheless, even during that period, exports of technology products were growing at 7% a year. They, even in that context, built up a manufacturing base, which was very successful in advanced manufacturing, proving to everyone, Uh, that manufacturing isn't dead and it shouldn't be dead. Uh, It's simply changing very rapidly. It's moving. It's digitized. uh, It's um, going to be a very different uh, type of manufacturing in the future from the mass production version we've had in the past with uh, 3D printing uh, as well as um, machine learning and artificial intelligence and cloud computing. So um, they got into that rapidly. They connected up with the rest of Europe in order to do that in particular with the Germans and the French Um, and they changed the nature of their society in the process as you would have seen electing a gay prime minister in the last few weeks. Who would have thought uh, in Ireland and marriage equality who would have thought uh, that could have happened in Ireland but the uh, the social change was part of the the massive economic change that was also taking place. Well we can do that here. Uh, There's nothing to stop our civil society and and work club is part of this civil society uh, to make those changes and it's happening around us uh, through our own students for example deciding that they don't necessarily want to graduate into a a job in a large organisation, they might want to create their own jobs in our own innovation ecosystems around UTS and in Sydney more widely Um, or they may enter into larger organisations but with a more entrepreneurial mindset uh, and a more social mindset. Um, When when we ask our students, do you want to be, when you're interested in entrepreneurship, are you going to be a private entrepreneur making a lot of money or do you want to be more of a social entrepreneur? They don't see the difference. Every entrepreneur is a social entrepreneur for, for the millennials. Um, If you're not contributing to society, then you're not a real entrepreneur from their point of view, which is a fascinating insight into the the mindset, I think, of many of our young people. And with that comes also the need to create social safety nets. uh, As we see in Scandinavia, Um, these are the happiest societies on the face of the earth, if we believe the evidence. Why is that and why have they been so successful? Because they have something they like to call flex security. They combine the flexibility in the labor market and encouragement of an entrepreneurial spirit with uh, safety nets that if you fall through the cracks then you get picked up and you're ready for the ni- next chance. You're ready for the next opportunity. You're trained up, uh, unlike societies without such safety nets where you drop and keep dropping until you become Uh, the victim uh, of uh, the latest populist movement. So I think I'll end there. Uh, I think uh, that's the way I see the future, uh, driven by ideas of course, uh, but driven essentially by social movements that uh, have to influence the politicians. We shouldn't be ones that wait around for politicians to take the actions for us to applaud. We'd love to see that to happen, but I think we've had enough experience to know that it is extremely unlikely, whatever side of politics one chooses, and that uh, the future of this society will be shaped by uh, the the actors um, within businesses, within community organisations, within public services, um, and within the higher education and schooling system. So, very happy to get your comments and um, and uh, disagreements, possibly. Hmm. Okay All right.
0: Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence
1: Guild, visit Florenceguild.com.